Hello, everybody. I'm Brooke Brower filling in for Ryan Nobles. I'm Rebecca Bird. And I'm Harry Enton. And this is The Forecast with Harry Enton. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We're glad you decided to join us. I'm filling in for Ryan. He's in Delaware as we record this, covering the breaking news related to those suspicious packages that have now been sent to a number of politicians and a few other individuals, as well as CNN's offices in New York. Uh, but we are under two weeks to the election, and there's a lot going on. And on the agenda today, we've got a couple of House races that we're going to dive into, along with a Senate race out west and a governor's race in a state where President Trump was campaigning earlier this week. But first, let's get to the forecast. Harry, what's happening out there? So the forecast right now has Democrats at 225 seats to Republicans 210. Of course, you need 218 for a majority, so Democrats are still favored. But of course, the margin of error is wide enough that Democrats could end up with as low as 202 seats or as high as 260. In the Senate, we got a different story. Republicans are still favored to maintain control in that body. In fact, they're favored to gain a seat. Uh, The most likely scenario being Republicans ending up controlling 52 seats with Democrats controlling only 48 seats. But again, there we have a margin of error that's wide enough that Democrats could potentially gain control of that body. The margin of error is wide enough that we could see Republicans winning as few as 48 seats or winning as many as 56. Part of that being that we still have a lot of tight races in the Senate, one of which we'll get to later. So you're saying it all comes down to turnout. Oh, God. Can I can can we like ban that phrase for forever? <laughs> what even is I got that it phrase? in under the wire. Though. You, you got it in under the wire. I believe that there's going to be an executive council of poll aggregators and forecasters meeting later today to ban the phrase. It all comes down to turnout. It's like an international consortium. It is an, it is official an, body. It is an international consortium. We will be meeting at either a fast food restaurant or a drinking hall where I will have a diet soda because, <laughs> you know. We forecasters can't be drinking on the job. Let me ask you a question, though, Harry, about yeah. about your uh, forecast. Yes, sir. It, it, you with this, we're several episodes into uh, this fantastic podcast. You've <laughs> delivered the forecast a few times in this yes. in this forum. Uh, it, what is is there a uh, I know it's kind of a polling term, a trend line sure. in your mind of where we are as far as I, forecast I goes? I, I mean, look, I, I think that the Senate has mostly stayed stable. I do think the GOP is doing a little bit better there. You have seen them gain ground in a number of states, specifically red states, that Democrats would need to either win control over hold, such as North Dakota, Texas, and Tennessee, where the polling does seem to be falling away from them. We've seen some tightening of the polls in other states, maybe a little bit in Indiana and Montana which are states that have Democratic incumbents, but Donald Trump won easily. But we've also seen the Democrats widening their leads in a number of states, including Florida, which Mm -hmm. we spoke about last time we were all together. Uh, In the House, there has been a slight trend towards Republicans, but that seems to be specific to our model. Uh, I don't see that necessarily occurring in other models, the reason being that there has seemed to be a little bit of a trend towards the Republicans on the generic congressional ballot since we first started doing this. Uh, But again, the Democrats have generally been between a 30 and 35 seat pickup in the House. And of course, they need 23 in order to get control of that body. So do you have any sense of why Republicans are doing better on the House side in your model, at least? I I, I think that the president's approval rating being slightly up has something to do with that. Uh, I think that those two trend lines tend to follow each other. Not perfectly. Um, This midterm isn't only about the president, but he plays a significant role in that. But again, the president's approval rating, despite being up, is still far enough south of his disapproval rating that 
it's not good for the Republican Party, and that is why the generic ballot continues to show a wide Democratic advantage and why models such as ours continue to show that Democrats are more likely than Republicans to win control of the House come November. Divided government, here we come. All right. Well, as we said at the top, we're going to get into it on a few different fronts here, Senate, Governor, and let's start, take a closer look at a couple of House races. We've got the 5th District in Virginia, where it's Republican Denver Riggleman running right against... Name. That is a great name. That's for a not a real name. Denver Riggleman That's running against. That's an anchor man name. It's incredible. <laughs> the Democrat in that race is Leslie Cockburn. Uh, this was the seat, a seat still held by Congressman Tom Garrett. He's not seeking re-election in order to undergo treatment for alcoholism. This is the district that includes uh, Charlottesville, home to the University of Virginia, uh, the scene of last year's deadly uh, Unite the Right rally. Cockburn is an award-winning journalist. She's the mother of actress Olivia Wilde. Riggleman is an Air Force veteran and businessman. He co-authored a book on the subject of Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Which is also an issue in this race. That's correct. Bigfoot paraphernalia, Bigfoot uh, pornography, was it? Erotica. Erotica. I think that's worth a whole podcast. He he denies the erotica part of it, but the Bigfoot part, he actually did co-author this book. It's undeniable. Uh, You know what? Any time that we get to bring up Bigfoot in a congressional campaign, I think almost seems like there may be many electoral gods. So what's happening down there in central Virginia? Yeah, so right now what we see is the forecast favoring Riggleman by four Uh, The New York Times poll that came out recently, in fact, earlier this week, had Cockburn ahead by one, though Trump had a net positive approval rating. Ergo, his approval rating was ahead of his disapproval rating, which would suggest that Riggleman probably has more room to grow. I'll further note that it's a mostly rural district, right? I think that we hear Charlottesville and we say, oh, wow, you know, really liberal. But that's, in fact, not the case. It's It's a long Mm -hmm. district. It stretches a good distance there. Right. North to south. It's a mostly white district. And actually has fewer college graduates than the average congressional district. And I'll further note that Trump won the district by 11 points. So this is a a lean Republican district for sure. I think that Cockburn is in the game for any number of reasons, not the least of which is that Riggleman has some issues. (laughs) Right. Bigfoot among them. But uh, what's interesting about this race, of course, is that it is even competitive in the first place. And obviously that has a lot to do with the political landscape. Tom Garrett won this district by 17 points in 2016. So for this to be a roughly four point race right now is really sort of astounding. One other thing I think we should note is, of course, that one of us, I believe, went to the University of Virginia. Wahoo. Moving on. Yeah. Let's move on to the uh, 27th district in Florida, where we have uh, Republican Maria Elvira Salazar against a name that Democrats know well, Donna Shalala, uh, the current uh, occupant of that seat, Congresswoman Ileana ross Leighton. She's uh, retiring at the end of this term. She's a Republican in a district where Hillary Clinton won by 20 points just a couple of years ago. And Shalala, of course, was the Health and Human Services Secretary under President Bill Clinton. Uh, She was the president of the University of Miami for 14 years after serving in the Clinton administration. Salazar is a former broadcast journalist. She's worked for Telemundo and other stations for three decades. Did we purposefully pick two House districts where journalists are running? That's a little bit unusual. I don't think that's any bias on our part. No, never. Definitely not. You know... This, to me, is maybe the most interesting house race of them all, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you were to lay out before this election where you would think that Democrats would win, even if there wasn't a way, if you were to pick the district 
where Hillary Clinton won so easily. But in fact, the forecast right now only has Shalala winning by four points. A New York Times poll recently had her up by seven. Um, but there are a few interesting nuggets about this district that I would keep in mind. Number one, um, Cuban Americans make up a very large portion of the vote. The district is only 28% non-Hispanic white. And Cubans, of course, usually vote Republican, especially older Cubans. And the weighted average partisanship of the district, which, of course, takes into account a slew of elections, not just the last presidential election, is a Democratic advantage, but it's only plus eight Democratic, which is far less than you might think looking at the 20-point Clinton margin. So this district has a number of surprises in it. Shalala, obviously, is someone who I think has turned out to be a weaker candidate than I think a lot of Democrats hope for. She doesn't speak Spanish. Which what? is incredible in this district. And also, she's a first-time candidate. At 77 years old, this is her first time running, which is... It's not necessarily an not so, advantage in right. a very competitive race like this one. But I, I, there was an amazing report uh, our friends at Politico had the other day about a debate that the two had that was in Spanish describing how Shalala was handling the debate, having it translated to her in real time, and it did not seem like it was going well for her purposes. Yeah, I, I think that this is an example where almost if this were any other year right, Maybe if this district were a little bit more Republican-leaning, maybe if the environment was a little bit more Republican-leaning, then I think Salazar would be winning here. But I think at the end of the day, if you look at the forecast and what it's trying to tell us, is that the district is probably just a little too Democratic-leaning. The year is probably just a little too Democratic. And so Shalala will win. But probably not because she's the strongest candidate. I'll point out one additional thing is the New York Times poll, despite all the hammering that Shalala has faced about being a weak candidate, actually had her as being a net positive. That is, her net favorability rating was on the positive side, not on the negative side. So maybe this is a little bit of people coming in and saying something about the district and the district voters. Maybe it's just that Salazar is a particularly good candidate. Right. And so in some of these other districts, states across the country, we've been discussing what are we going to see in terms of Latino turnout in Texas, Arizona, Nevada. Obviously, Florida is a different animal with a higher Cuban-American population. What are you expecting to see on that front in a district like this? Yeah, I I think, you know, there are three districts in the southern part of Florida that have a high Cuban-American population. One's the 25th, one's the 26th, and one's the 27th. And if Republicans are going to succeed, it will be because they will need a high Cuban-American turnout. They will need a lower turnout from younger Cubans who tend to be more Democratic-leaning. And also, you know, it's not like this district doesn't have any other types of uh, Latino-Americans, Hispanic-Americans in it. Uh, But the Democrats right now are struggling among these Cuban-American voters who pulled the lever for Hillary Clinton two years ago and right now seem at least... They are holding on to what I would call their ancestral republicanism. (laughs) And if Democrats do fail in these districts, it will be because the Cuban-American vote came out and came out strongly for the Republicans, whether it be Salazar here, Curbelo in the 26th, or obviously um, um, Mario Diaz-Balart in Mm -hmm. the 25th, uh, where I think that he is favored still, despite the fact that that district has also moved a little bit to the left, but is more Republican-leaning than either of these two. And you mentioned Hillary Clinton. Of course, this is one of the few places where she's viewed uh, by campaign strategists, by Democrats as a net positive, and she's been there to help Shalala in this campaign, which is also extremely interesting. The one place where Hillary Clinton can dare to venture in 2018. (laughs) 
Well, it's it's also I th- possibly a good example this race of showing that not all name ID is the same in terms of its strength. So Donna Shalala has very good name ID with Democrats nationally, maybe even uh, Democrats across Florida, but certainly Salazar has incredible name ID by being on TV uh, for folks who've been watching her there for mm-hmm. a very long time. So Right, and of course, it's not only that Salazar is on TV in South Florida, but she's on a Spanish language television, and even in South Florida, there are only so many of those versus English language television where you will have, you know, any number of channels. You know, you only have so, so many down in South Florida, and so she is a very well-known figure. And then one other thing I'll point out is just like the Democratic gubernatorial contest in this state, um, this was a primary that was won with a plurality. It was not won with a majority of the vote. And one wonders if Democrats do, in fact, not win this race, whether or not they were hurt by the fact that there were a lot of candidates going up against Shalala. Hmm. All right. After the break, we'll talk about the Arizona Senate race and a governor's race that we've been uh, watching very, very closely uh, along with uh, the president of the United States. That's up next. Back to the forecast. I'm Brooke Brower sitting in for Ryan Nobles here with Rebecca Berg and Harry Enton. We're going to move now to the Arizona Senate race where it's Republican Martha McSally versus Democrat Kirsten Sinema, two members of the House of Representatives vying for the Senate seat of retiring Republican Jeff Flake. Uh, Rebecca, you were out there around the time of the primary. What's what's our read on this one right now? Well, obviously the race has evolved quite a bit since the primary. This was you know, a late primary. It was in August, and so Martha McSally didn't get to move on to the general election fully uh, until that point. Of course, she bested in that primary race Kelly Ward, uh, as well as Sheriff Joe Arpaio. So it was yeah. what we would consider a spirited uh, primary contest. Speaking about old uh, old people that might have been elected to the Senate, Joe Arpaio's like 84 or something? Yeah, and so now Kelly Ward for her next act is doing local musical theater, but that's another thing for another time. We'll all go see it on a field trip one day. Um, But now we are in the general election. The race is tightening. Uh, Democrats had hoped that McSally would be damaged in that primary process. It doesn't look like that was really the case. Uh, They thought that perhaps she would be dragged to the right too much on a lot of these issues. But in fact, she's embracing President Trump, embracing uh, a lot of his issues. The biggest issue right now in this race is really, as in so many states, it's really Healthcare, And so cinema and Democrats are trying to say that McSally would not protect pre-existing conditions, uh, that she wouldn't protect people's health care insurance. Uh, McSally just came out with an ad saying she is, quote, leading the fight to force insurance companies to cover pre-existing conditions, similar to what we're hearing from Republican candidates elsewhere, that sort of pushback. Um, and she has been trying to paint cinema as this extremist, a, a liberal extremist, uh, going back to her protests of the yeah. Iraq war. Yeah. And uh, our own Andrew Kaczynski has done some excellent reporting he on has. that as well. If our listeners would like to check out CNN.com. Yes. So uh, good plug. it is a very exciting, and heated Democrat, race right Democrats now. probably very happy that she's I- engaging on the topic that they want it to be about with health care, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, if you're having to defend yourself on this issue, I mean, it just shows yeah. what a potent issue this has become. And you're seeing similar things in the Missouri Senate race, for example. Josh Hawley cut an ad uh, using his young son who has a pre-existing condition, a chronic bone disorder, yeah. uh, and talked about how he would also protect pre-existing conditions. So this is a common theme we are seeing. My, how the tables have turned on the issue of health care. And so quickly. So quickly. Just eight years ago, we saw Democrats on the defensive about the Affordable Care Act, and this year, yeah. it's Republicans on the defensive about pre-existing conditions. And Republicans have whiplash on this sort of. I've talked to many people in the party who are just shocked at how quickly this issue moved and how quickly uh, they were sort of caught flat-footed. Um, they didn't really see this coming. And so that's why a lot of these candidates are so late to the party defending themselves on health care because they just didn't see the issue developing this way. What are the numbers? Yeah, show us so, out there? so the numbers right now indicate a close race. Cinema in the forecast is favored by a point uh, keep in mind, no Democrat has been elected to the state of Arizona since Dennis D. Consini, all the way back in 1988. Although I believe that there's still like a ancient history, ancient history, 30 years. It was 30 years ago, my friend. Um, but there's still apparently the Dennis D. Consini office. Like it, you can still find it, and it like has it like on the side of a board or something. And it might have been in Tempe. It might have been in Phoenix. I'm not sure exactly where. Um, Clinton only lost the state by three and a half points. But the weighted average partisanship actually has that the that this is a plus eight GOP state. So the fact that cinema's lead, which was larger earlier on, has deflated a little bit shouldn't be too shocking. I'll also point out that cinema is the most moderate member of the House, according to her roll call um, vote record, next to Connor Lamb, who, of course, made his name right. as a moderate running in the PA 18 special election. McSally herself is fairly moderate by GOP standards, though, as Rebecca was pointing out, had to move a little bit to the right or embrace Trump because of the primary and then has seemingly continued to do so even into the general. Mm -hmm. And Harry, what, what, kind of, what, what kind of demographics are you looking at as far as who, who these candidates are appealing to and what's going to uh, really shape the vote? Yeah, I mean, look, Arizona is basically Florida of the West in some ways, right? It has a growing senior citizens <laughs> population. Uh, probably that senior citizen population is further to the right than Florida, although perhaps less so than when it was the greatest generation, say, 20 years ago in Florida. Um, you also have a rising Latino vote. And I think one of the questions that is still unanswered in, throughout many states in the South and Southwest is what percentage of the electorate will Latinos make up? Mm -hmm. Will they actually come out and vote? Arizona has pretty easy early voting. So, you know, we'll get a pretty decent idea early on whether or not Latinos are truly showing up. The more Latinos who show up in Arizona, the better it is for them. And more than that, I think an interesting question is Latinos in Arizona were pretty, pretty okay with John McCain. Mm -hmm. How okay are they with Martha McSally? Or will this be an instance where Latino voters, you know, we think of them in the Northeast as this very Democratic bloc, but in the South and the Southwest, outside of Nevada, have historically, although they've leaned a little bit more Democratic, have not been overly Democratic. And do Latinos in Arizona vote more like California Latinos, or do they vote mm -hmm. more like Texas Latinos or New Mexico Latinos? And if it is California Latinos, that's a very big deal and very good news for Kirsten Cinema. If, however, it is more like the traditional Southwest Latino, which has leaned a little bit towards the left, but not overwhelmingly so, McSally may, in fact, hold on. And this is one of the reasons why when you talk to Democrats about Arizona and Nevada, the Sun Belt 
uh, as they call it, uh, they view these states as sort of a work in progress because the Latino vote is not firmly on the Democratic side yet. And that's why this is sort of a wild card in that respect this year. Is it are they there for Democrats yet or is this a five to 10 year work in progress. And yeah, and I think the question is, is this state going to vote more like a state that voted for Donald Trump by just three and a half points, or is it going to be a state that voted more like its weighted average partisanship of plus eight GOP? If it's Mm -hmm. the latter, then McSally has a real shot to win this. However, if this votes more like the state that Clinton only lost by three and a half points, then Sinema will ultimately end up victorious. All right. right. Shall we turn to a state a little bit cooler, farther north? A little bit. Yes. Moving on. Finally, we're going to look at the Wisconsin governor's race. Uh, President Trump himself was there campaigning for incumbent Republican Scott Walker uh, just a couple of nights ago. Walker's running for a third term, but it's his fourth time on the ballot, (laughs) given his uh, recall (laughs) fight uh, a few beers back. Uh, His Democratic opponent is Tony Evers, an educator and uh, currently the state superintendent of schools. What do we see out there, Harry? Well, forecast for the first time, in Scott Walker's career running in the last eight years for the governorship of Wisconsin actually has him as the underdog. The forecast has Tony Evers winning this race by four points. Um, and more than that, it's it's a sort of a confluence of events, right? Walker's approval ratings or net favorable ratings are underwater for the first time this close to an election bid for him, either in 2010, 2012 with the recall, or 2014 when he was running for a second full term. Um, Trump is underwater in the state. Remember, this is a state that Donald yeah. Trump won by, I think, it 0.75 percentage points. Excuse me if it was actually 0.72. My apologies. Um, so he's underwater. And this is the first time that one of Walker's foes has a net favorable rating that's in positive territory, not negative. Tom Barrett, when he ran in 2010 and 2012, was in negative territory. And Mary Burke was in negative territory in 2014. The weighted average partisanship in the state, plus three GOP, so perhaps a little bit more towards the Republican side than you might necessarily think, but certainly not as Republican-leaning as Arizona. And then finally, one thing that I think we should keep in mind is the polling has been somewhat divergent in the state. Yes, the forecast says Scott Walker winning by four, but the Marquette University Law School poll, which is run by our friend Charles Franklin, one of the better pollsters in the nation, uh, has actually tended to find more positive numbers for Walker, had him ahead by one, I believe, in the, his last poll versus the Maris poll, which has consistently shown that Tony Evers has been ahead by high single or low double digits. So we'll see exactly what happens. And more than that, just keep in mind that this was a state where the poll said that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And obviously she didn't. Right. So you're saying it's a little too soon for me to start writing my story about (laughs) Democrats making a comeback uh, in Wisconsin and in the Midwest? Or can we start drafting? I I, I think we can draft that story. But the question is whether or not Walker is the outlier who survives or whether or not he Mm -hmm. is the prototypical Republican who had held his own over the last eight years, but has since gone the way of the dodo bird. What a ride he's had, Rebecca. I mean, he he gets elected. He beats the recall. He gets elected again. He runs for president. In the beginning, very much thought of as a strong contender. Drops out explicitly because of Donald Trump. And here he is fighting for his political life 
uh, with the help of Donald Trump just a couple years later. Right. I mean, it's a tough year if you're a 2016 former Republican presidential candidate. Just look at Ted Cruz in Texas. What is is going on here with with (laughs) Donald Trump coming in? He called God knows. I don't even remember what he's called Scott Walker. I'm sure he called him boring or something. I don't know if he was in the race long enough. He didn't even get a nickname. But now Ted is beautiful Ted, which is a that's right. It's, 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 instead of lying, Ted. I mean, uh, Ted Cruz's father was accused of being part of the JFK assassination. And now all of a sudden. Times change. Times sh- times change. It's been a year. You're talking about 1988 <laughs> like it was, you know, uh, I'm saying it's a long time ago, just yesterday. 2015 and 16 was literally just yesterday. I remember it well. I was a young man at that time. And You're I, still a young man. I mean, by the same token, though, we all remember when Rick Perry was calling Trump a cancer on conservatism and Lindsey Graham, blah, blah. I mean, like all of these guys. Rand Paul all... had a couple of uh, zingers, too. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Orange yeah. face I mean, something. You're headed out to Wisconsin. I what? am headed. Yeah. So we are taping this Thursday. When you all are listening to this podcast, I will be on my way to Wisconsin or already in Wisconsin on Friday. President Obama will be in the state campaigning for the Democratic slate. So not only Evers, but also Senator Tammy Baldwin and the Democratic congressional candidates as well. And as you know, Harry and Brooke, there are some competitive congressional races in Wisconsin uh, as well, um, including... It isn't the most competitive race in Wisconsin, I would argue, but the race for Paul Ryan's Iron seat. Stash. The Iron Stash. Iron Stash, where some of the polling has indicated a close race. Democrats have been releasing some internals recently, though Iron Stash, I know the Democrats really want him, uh, Randy Bryce, but uh, he is an underdog at this particular time in our forecast. Another one we'll be watching. Uh, Harry, it's time for trivia. What do you have? It is time for trivia. And this isn't just an effort to embarrass me, because I think that's kind of how you like to frame this. So my question is, do you want something more pop culture-y, or do you want want something that's more electoral, that is more... It doesn't matter. I guess it would be less embarrassing if we didn't know something about pop culture, as opposed to not knowing... I can away on that, but I I defer to you. Okay. Here we go. The 1996 film First Kid about a fictitious child of the President of the United States, featured a cameo appearance by this then-congressman whose celebrity ex-wife is known to call into C-SPAN. Oh. And please... Ding! Oh, I know it, too. Uh, Okay, go ahead. You go first. You want to say it at the same time? Okay. One, two, three. Sonny Bono. Bono. Yes, it is Sonny Bono. <laughs> all right, all right. All right. Yeah, we both win. You both Let's win. stop there. It was, no. it was the C-SPAN share thing that... Yeah, That's right. uh, we're, we're going to have to a- a- ask one more here, and we'll see if we can get it. Okay. And I don't. I want different answers at different times. None of the same answering at the same time. We both time. knew. This Oscar winner, who got a 12-minute standing ovation at the 1972 Academy Awards, also wrote and starred in the 1940 film The Great Dictator, which mocked Hitler. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, what now? 72? The 70s? In 1972, this Oscar winner, who got a 12-minute standing ovation at the 1972 Academy Awards, also wrote and starred in the 1940 film The Great Dictator, which mocked Hitler. Charlie Chaplin? Brooke? What kind of Oscar was it? I'm sorry. <laughs> that is what the... I read you the question. A small gold statue, likely. Well, I... You're thinking like a lifetime achievement. Yeah. Possibly. 
12 minute standing ovation, it had to be someone right. truly special. I don't have an answer. And someone old. Well, I will say that one of you has the correct answer. It wasn't Rebecca's right. Yes. Here we go. I was actually alive at the well time, done. so I remember this yeah. very clearly. It was that. Uh, That's the, not. It's. it's <laughs> I it was one of Charlie Chaplin. I believe it might have actually been Charlie Chaplin's first speaking role, because obviously, hmm. remember, he was a film of the silent era. Right. But this was. He. I think he later said that if he knew the horrors of Hitler, he would not have, in fact, made this film. But he did, in fact, make huh. it. And I think it was actually a pretty good film. Well, now I'll have to go home and watch it. Maybe after, maybe after the election. Well, we're never going to get there. <laughs> 12 days, All right. right? Uh, and that does it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, uh, Harry. Thank you, Rebecca. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, leave us a rating or a review. That will help new listeners find our show. And, hey, tell a friend, tell a family member to check out this podcast. You can always find us on Twitter. Give us your feedback there. I'm at Brooke Brower on Twitter. Rebecca, you are? I'm at Rebecca G. Berg. Rebecca G. Is a poet. Well, who's Rebecca E. Berg? That's what I want to know. And I'm, I just, I want to meet the person who took Rebecca Berg. And I'm at Forecaster Enton. And this is The Forecast with Harry Enton. Special thanks to our producers, Amy Eason and Emma Soslowski. We'll see you right back here next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.